Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast. Hello from the NeuroRounds. This is round 18. I'm Dr. Christy Snyder calling. Today we'll be going over language and vision disorders. We've touched on some of these before, but I just want to kind of go through in a little bit more detail today. So uh, first we're going to talk about language disorders. I just want to do a brief overview of the brain regions that are associated with language. So of course you have Burkhazarian uh, involved in the production of speech, area in front, Wernicke's area involved in understanding speech, also the pathway between them um, is really important as well. Uh, also motor areas are important for you know, pronouncing speech. And the left basal ganglia, the thalamus, and supplemental uh, motor areas. Some other areas that are important are the left temporal pole and left inferior temporal area. And it's important for uh, naming entities belonging to certain conceptual uh, groups. Left temporal vortices, uh, task for manipulating concepts and words. And the anterior medial uh, temporal area is called the basal temporal. Language area is important for word processing. So first I'll talk about aphasias. Aphasias are essentially language disorders. Uh, they can uh, compromise comprehension or formulation of the language. So this can affect the syntax, which is the grammatical structure of the sentences. Lexicon, which are the individual words that you can use to describe a concept. Morphology is the speech sound, so the phonemes and the morphemes uh, that go to make a word and the structure of words. So these structures that are damaged are part of the neural system that involve both the assembly of phonemes into words and words into sentences. Uh, so apparently it's the temporal, the temporal ordering of linguistic components, so we're little, the relational aspects of language that are affected. So aphasia is the breakdown between the two-way translation between having an idea and the symbols that are used to communicate that idea. So you can't translate the nonverbal images in your head into words and the grammatical relationships to convey a meaning. And you also can't do the alternative uh, where you hear words and then uh, match that back to a meaning. It's not a disorder of perception. So even deaf people can understand language, their sign language. It's not a disorder of movement. There is, uh, there is a disorder called dysarrhythmia where you can't have coordinated speech movements. That's not what aphasia is. And it's not a disorder of thought processes. So even schizophrenic patients can um, quite fluently explain what they're thinking, but what they're thinking is disordered. So aphasia is different from all of these. So Broca's aphasia is expressive aphasia. Uh, usually the speech is labored and unusually slow. So this is kind of tip of the tongue where they can't find the words. Um, there are a lot of pauses between words. Again, it's non-fluent, so you don't have the melodic modulation. Um, and there's reduction in the number of words. Um, the damage is usually through Burgess area here and the perpendicular. Sorry. Um, 
These people are usually able to retrieve words for entities or nouns. They have, they're less able to retrieve words for actions, so verbs, and also relationships, so conjunctions and prepositions. They have a hard time with that. So again, the areas that are affected are the right frontal left, I'm sorry, left of right there. Uh, Broca's aphasia, they have trouble repeating back sentences, so they can understand what you say to them, but they can't repeat it back to you. They also have a, a grammaticism, so an, an inability to organize words and sentences. So usually in English, I will go home tomorrow, is that kind of a sequence of noun, verb, object, uh, but usually this order is messed up in Broca's evasion. You also don't use the right verb endings for past tense, so you put in the ed or the ing on the ends of words. So things morphemes with the uh, word is messed up in Broca's aphasia as well. Wernicke's aphasia is known as receptive aphasia. So this is very fluent speech, uh, but it doesn't make any sense. So this is what we know as word salad. So it's very effortless, melodic. They're talking, and it sounds like it should make sense, but it really doesn't. There's a lot of word choice errors, and they also have difficulty comprehending language. Um, Wernicke's area, though, is not the center of auditory comprehension. It does process speech sounds, so it recruits the sounds. And then those sounds are then mapped to words that evoke concepts. Auditory um, comprehension occurs later after Wernicke's area, and the concepts are associated with a given word become activated to meanings. It's also not where uh, word selection is. Um, it usually just puts the parts of the words together. So you already know the word, but it puts the different parts of the phonemes of the words together. So when Wernicke's aphasia is back here, Usually, um, Brahman's area 22, back in 22, 37, 39, and 40. So back in this area is where Wernicke's aphasia is uh, usually located. You also have conductive aphasia, which is affected the uh, connection between Broca's and Wernicke's, uh, their arcuate basilicus. So they can comprehend simple sentences and produce intelligible sentences. They can't repeat the sentence or assemble phonemes effectively, or name objects, you say have a naming task. Um, again, this is part of the system that use, uh, assembles phonemes into morphemes and then into words. And again, it is uh, damaged usually back in this area. Global aphasia um, has aspects of all of the above. So almost completely um, unable to comprehend or uh, formulate any kind of language. Um, there are some parts of speech that are preserved, so there is deliberate speech known as prepositional speech. Uh, usually the only effective way they communicate is by using um, curse words. Um, they use them quite appropriately when they get frustrated and they have all the tone and prosody you would expect. Um, an example here, if you read it, I don't really want to curse at you today. <laughs> uh, also automatic uh, speech routines uh, such as or say the days of the week or uh, you know, something you memorize, such as a, a, you know, a child's song, uh, Old MacDonald or something, so you don't have to think about putting the sequence of words together. Um, usually the damage is quite global, it affects Broca's area, the basal ganglion region, uh, the conduct or conduction aphasia, and Wernicke's area, so the whole kind of side is affected. Echinesia is a loss of ability to move uh, muscles voluntarily. 
Um, so you can have akinic mutism, which is, uh, affects the supplementary motor area related to speaking. So this has a role in initiating and maintaining speech, as well as attention and emotion. So these uh, patients have failure to communicate by spoken word, gestures, or facial expressions. Basically, they have no drive to communicate. Sometimes they recover, and when they do, they say they just didn't want to speak. They just had no urge to. So we've also talked before about the dominant versus non-dominant. So uh, all I've talked about before today is left side. That's where most language is. But there's also language on the right side um, for writing people. And this is a kind of non-linguistic language. So you have a discourse, which is the ability to kind of tell a story or a joke. So you have to put together this long storyline. And there's also movements uh, that also accompany the speech. So there's pantomime, such as a peace sign, I love you. Um, these things that kind of convey a semantic um, meaning. Um, and then gestures, which is also doing with my hands, to uh, emphasize and color and embellish speech. Um, those are usually the right side. And then prosody. So these are the tones and intonations, stresses, melody, cadence, tempo, um, everything about my speech that kind of colors it and gives it more than a literal definition um, to speech. So there are four different kinds of prosody. There's intrinsic, which is used to clarify meaning. So it's the equivalent to the commas, colons, semicolons, periods, and question marks. So when you're asking a question, it goes up at the end. Um, you have dialectal or idiosyncratic. So this is how you know that I'm from the South. <laughs> and also, you hear somebody like they're from Boston or from Michigan. So that's uh, this kind of prosody. It's also intellectual. So it imparts meaning. So if you had the sentence, he is clever, you could say he is clever. And that would actually mean that you're um, denoting his, he's actually very smart. But if you say he is clever, then that kind of makes it sound like I'm being sarcastic. There's also emotional uh, prosody that helps you know if I'm happy, sad, or angry. So prosody is very interesting because if I tell you something, but the way I say it conveys more information than what I say. So this is actually much more important than finding the words. So it's how you say it than what you say. A, a prosodia is a deficit in using prosody. Um, usually, this is the right side, the homologs to Broca's and Wernicke's area. So if you have the homolog to Broca's area is affected, then you're not able to produce prosody. Or if the homolog to Wernicke's area on the right side is affected, you can't comprehend prosody. He could also have damage in the left or in the corpus callosum, which connects the two, um, because it, speech is a whole brain endeavor. You have to be able to know what words you're putting prosody onto. And if you can't communicate the word selection to you know, how you're going to say the word, then uh, that would be a problem. Also, um, it's different in tonal languages. So I might butcher this, so I can get it here to do it the right way. But in some uh, tonal language, like Mandarin, you have one kind of phoneme, ma, but it means many different ways based on how you say it. So you can say ma, that means mother. Ma, I think means numb. Ma, when it goes down the middle, it's like horse. And then ma is curse. So for these things, they actually impart meaning. And this is not a fact, not affected in a, prosod a prosodia. 
because in fact they have art meaning. But if there was emotion conveyed, that would be affected. So uh, people who have different tonal languages have very different kind of pattern. Um, so it's very interesting. Okay, so those were the review of some of the language disorders. We'll go on to visual disorders. So agnosia uh, is a visual disorder where you can have a normal percept, but it has no meaning. So this happens in alert, attentive, and intelligent people. They can perceive what's out there, they just don't recognize it. So there's a difference between perception and recognition. So you can uh, perceive an object, and you can say, you can describe it, you can say it's round. There's three of them. It's one on top of the other, so you see what's out there. Um, you can copy a drawing, and it would be a pretty good drawing of it, but you just can't say what that thing is. There's also a distinction between naming and recognition. So you could say, what is this, and what is it used for? Um, you could say, what is it, and they could say what it is, but what is it used for? You're not able to do that. So that's between naming and recognition and perceiving and recognition. Proposagnosia is um, a deficit in recognizing faces. Um, so you either can't learn new faces or remember old ones, but you can recognize other cues. So if someone walks in the room like, I don't know who that person is, but they start talking and you can recognize them, or based on the way they move or their posture, you can recognize them. It's not specific to human faces. Um, for example, farmers who know their cows might not be able to recognize individual cows. Also, if you are an expert in some field, like bird watching or cars, um, you should be able to know one bird species from another. But if you have purpose of you might not be able to do that as well. So this is a failure to recognize stimuli that belong to a group containing numerous visually ambiguous uh, stimuli. So stimuli that share the same subcomponents that are arranged in the same way, but they are slightly different. So on faces you have nose shape, eye shape. Most people have two eyes, nose, and a mouth. It's the way these things are uh, shaped that helps you know one person from the other. And the thing is the problem with uh, getting the triggered memory. So you see the face, but the face is the trigger of the associated memories to that person. You need other stimuli to kind of get that memory uh, for them. So you need the visual, the, I'm sorry, the auditory to trigger those memories. So, proposagnosia is uh, related to damage of the fusiform face area. This is the bottom of the brain here. The fusiform face areas are here. Um, you, if you have proposagnosia, you can tell emotion from the face, you just can't tell who the face is related to. If you can't tell emotion, then that's a problem with the amygdala, which we've covered before. It's also visual object agnosia, which is kind of general or category specific. So with propagnosia, you do know categories of things. This is a bird. I don't know that it's a robin, but I know that it's a bird. This is a car. I can't tell you it's a Honda, but it's a car. If you have visual object agnosia, you can't do the category. This is much more broad. Um, but you might be able to trigger the name of the concept if it's placed in um, a different orientation. You also have word blindness, alexia. So you can ask these patients to copy a word and they can copy it, they perceive it, but they just don't understand the pattern, recognize the pattern to say what word is uh, being symbolized there. You also have disorders of topographic or spatial orientation. 
Um, so there's a place area, a parahippocampal place area um, that might be affected. So this is a region that uh, perceives the local environment and it's essential for navigation. It encodes the geometry of the local environment to kind of give you your bearings. Um, but if you have disorder of this area, then you can't locate where you are in a metal building or your room or if you get access. Um, so the problem is you, can't, you don't have access to those memories to lead you there. Also about a balance syndrome, which we talked about, I think, even last week. Cybertype uh, exnosia, where you can only perceive one part of the scene at a time. Um, you can look around the scene and see different parts of it, but you just can't all tie it together. Optic ataxia is where you can't um, target or point to target based on visual tracking. Ocular apraxia, uh, you can't shift gaze uh, to a specific part in the space. It's usually damaged to areas 7, 19, and 39. 39, 19, 7. So back in those regions. Um, usually this is a, a someone who has very low blood pressure. Um, they have a cerebral uh, artery uh, infarction. Cerebral echinotopsia is basically where you can't see movement. So this results either because you don't have good smooth pursuit uh, of tracking the object, or you have damage to the angular gyros, usually in area MT, back here. So there is an example of someone who has this, patient LM. She can see very slowly moving targets, but if you moved more than eight degrees per second, she would just see the object appearing at different places, she would actually see it move. Um, so she had damage in uh, 1937. So again, back here, it gets MT and V5. So when we talked about vision, we went over this. Uh, that has a lot of neurons that are responsible for um, stimulus direction, speed, orientation, and binocular disparity. So that's how your eyes are in different locations. So they see the you know, array at slightly different angles. You put it together, you can perceive depth that way. There are different types of um, motion that is perceived. So there's first order motion. This is luminance over space and time. So when a shadow passes over ground, you can uh, perceive motion that way. Second order motion is a change in contrast. And third order motion is pattern tracking. So you can see that things are moving, but you need attention to know which direction they're moving. Okay. One final one is constructional apraxia. This is kind of associated to visual uh, disorders, but it might be a more kind of global one. Uh, so it's an impairment to construct a copy of a visually presented model. That means the Simon blocks for drawing. So this task requires not only normal visual acuity, but also you have to be able to perceive the different elements and their relationships to each other, and also adequate motor ability. So some people think this is a visual um, task. It might also be um, kind of a spatial one, so being able to relate things to each other. Um, it might also be related to a language deficit. Again, it's kind of moving symbolically. It's usually related to a right parietal region. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Rounds podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction 
between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at integratebrainhealth.com.